0: Well, you know, so you, you leave the driver's seat at the end of the 74 season and from an outside perspective, from my perspective, it looked like Cool and Olson were poised to be the team, you know, to really be hot rodders all across the nation in the NHRA circuit, but you decided to step away at that point. What, why, what, what was the reason you stepped out of the seat at that point?
1: First of all, was our commitment to our families, which even though our children were growing up and whatever, um, it's family, you know, uh, and there was no way in the world that like, we could bring our wives and children on tour with us or whatever, and they were kind enough to never hassle us about towing to Gainesville or English Town or India or Columbus or wherever. That was just never an issue with them. But that commitment that Mike and I had made to them, that one year, one year only, was a very big factor in, in that decision. And I reluctantly agree with you that we probably were poised to be as competitive as anybody at that time. Uh, we'd run well enough that we had wonderful working relationships with all of our sponsors and parts manufacturers. And we always were at the top of the list for the latest, greatest, everything. And we did some experimental work with titanium pistons for Bob Brooks, you know, didn't work out, burned up a bunch of parts, but we learned a lot, you know, and it just helped cement that relationship. So Whenever any of those guys would come up, Engel would come up with a new camshaft grind or uh, Goodyear would come up with a new tire. We were always right there at the head of the line to get that stuff. And as a result, that does make a difference on how well you run on a consistent basis. And we were running consistently well. The family factor was a major factor. But the other thing was that I I was getting a lot of people contacting me about going to work for them. A lot of that had to do with my relationship with SEMA because I had continued to serve on the SEMA technical committee. I had become very involved in the SEMA organization when it was still the Speed Equipment Manufacturers Association. And I got to know a lot of the manufacturers, a lot of people in the industry, and I kept getting these offers for very attractive jobs but they all had, uh, you know, a little problem. And that was none of them really were conducive to melding with a racing schedule. Uh, The other thing is when I was driving the car, I was at the shop in Santa Ana. I, every, pretty much every night of the week to work on the car, to be personally involved with it. And that was taking its toll as well. Um, Mike's engine building business was going gangbusters. He was the go-to Donovan guy uh, for parts and tune-up and whatever. <clears throat> I, I was still uh, general manager at Waterman Racing Engines at that time. I was doing all the Hayes clutch work in, uh, at, at Waterman at that time. We were the West Coast distributor for Hayes slider clutches, so I knew a lot about clutches. And I kept getting people calling me up wanting me to hire me for you know, a fairly good amount of money and some great benefits and whatever. And I, I could see in the future that I probably had a, a role in the high performance industry that would evolve over time and likely result in some pretty attractive employment opportunities. <clears throat> but I, <clears throat> I knew that That could never happen as long as I was driving that race car. And it really didn't have as much to do with the time I needed to go to the races or work on the car as it did with, I'm going to invest a lot of time and effort and money and education in this guy. And I don't need him going out next weekend and killing himself. Uh, And all of a sudden, I'm stuck with somebody who's no longer available in this key position. Only a few of these proposals involved that kind of conversation, but it was there, and I could sense that it was there in other conversations. Hey, you know what? I got a good job right here now with Waterman. I'm still able to race um, when I want to for fun. We're still running well. We're still doing well locally. We're still doing well at the few national events we run, so I'm good. But as the 1974 season wore on, I could sense that – this is not gonna last forever. It just can't. Uh, In order for me to optimize my opportunities, at some point, I'm gonna have to make a decision that it's one or the other. It's either something in the high performance industry that's really substantial or racing, but not both. And so kind of mid-season in 74, I told, cool. This is gonna be my last year. Uh, when we run the NHRA finals in Ontario or the super nationals, whatever it was called at that time, that's going to be my last ride. I don't want to tell anybody because I don't want you being hounded by every wannabe driver in the world. Cause you know, that's going to happen. That was commonplace back in those days. A ride gets vacated. The line forms at the rear, you know? <laughs> uh, and I don't, I didn't want to put cool through that. And, and I really didn't want, people concentrating it on for me as well you know why are you doing this why are you quitting why don't you want to continue? i didn't need any of that so we really we tried to keep it under wraps but somehow it got out the latter part of the season so by the time we got to ontario for the finals it was obviously very common knowledge that this was going to be my last race um, and uh, i had already been told that Once that race was completed and I was no longer going to be in a race car, I had a standing offer to go to work for SEMA uh, to be on staff as their technical and legislative director, a position that was held at that time by the wave maker, Don Prieto, whose third section of your interview I'm, I'm waiting for with trembling hands. Um, because uh, he was moving on to bigger and better things. And and I knew that, you know, once once the that event was over, my career was going to take a different direction. And I had already told Sid Waterman that as well. Because um, even though we had a wonderful relationship, and he's still probably my closest friend in the world to this day, <clears throat> he understood that uh, my career was probably going to take a different course than his engine building business. Um, and an interesting side note on that event at Ontario, we struggled to qualify. And I chalk it up to the fact that Mike Cool was trying so hard to run low ET and top speed and win the race, knowing it was my last race, that we consistently on qualifying runs overpowered the track, smoked the tires, then he'd back it down too far and, we wouldn't run up to the bump spot and we finally made a run that had us in the show, but just barely. It was like a six, something six twelve or something. And the bump was a 14 or I don't remember the exact numbers, but out of a 32 car field, I think we were 28th or 29th and there was still a session left to go. And of course, after we had made our last one, we got right back in line, worked our way up and they shut the line off right ahead of our car at 6 p.m so we didn't even have a chance to make another run we had to wait that whole session as cars chipped away and chipped away and finally i think we ended up 31st out of a 32 car field. to not qualify at that race w- would have been emotionally devastating i'll admit it it, it, it would have been a, a hard pill to swallow but we made the show came back on sunday and in the first round, we were paired against a car called the Jade Grenade yeah. from way back east. Yep. Uh, and the driver was that Don was
0: Roberts up. driving it.
1: No, it was a guy named Sarge Arciero. Okay. Um, after Don Roberts had quit driving it, and there were some other guys that drove the, the grenades, uh, it, it was Sarge Arciero, okay. who was from Pennsylvania, uh, suburb of Philadelphia. Great guy, and he and I over the course of the years that we were traveling the NHRA circuit together became really close friends. And whenever he'd come out to California, he'd always spend time at our place and we'd party together and all kinds, and just a really good guy and a very close personal friend. And and I was troubled a bit by the fact that we were gonna race each other in the first round because one of us is gonna have to lose, you know? But we showed up on Sunday and we made our burnouts and backed up and ran. And it was, I could see his front wheel. We were pretty much even to about the thousand foot mark. And I could feel our engine laying down as we were burning some pistons. Coolhead turned the screw a little too hard. And Sarge went by and took the win in the first round. Okay, so Sarge RC Arrow beats Carl Olson. Olson's done. His career of driving is over. No big deal, right? Well, what had happened with the Jane Grenade is on that run, he blew an engine. And they tried desperately to get a spare in the car, but they didn't have all the parts they needed. And they, and they ran out of time and they were unable to make the, the call for round two. And it turned out that was the last top fuel run that Sarge RCR, RCR ever made. Oh. So we both retired from drag racing on the same run. <laughs> and we, all of the years that we marveled about that, uh, uh, until he passed away a couple of years ago, it was always right up there, number one issue that we was always pretty much start out a conversation. <laughs> you know, remember the day you retired? Yeah, I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> but then after the retirement, after my retirement, we had already decided to continue running the car as Cool and Olsen, the fast guys and whatever, still with the revell sponsorship through the end of the 74 season. And then because I was leaving as driver, Ravel felt it was no more a good fit for them. And absolutely makes all the sense in the world. If it's not Cool and Olsen that's on on the model and Olsen's not driving the car, there's not that connection anymore. And we understood that. And we'd pretty much maximized the return on our sponsorship over the two years that we ran the Ravel colors. So it was kind of natural. And so we did a bit different paint job for it in 1975. And I think the first driver we put in it, well, the first driver we put it in was Bill Tidwell. And we went to the 75 Bakersfield March meet and Bill had a problem with the handling of the car. And I got to say that car was a little evil. There were a couple of times that it almost got ahead of me and, and it never did, but I could feel it trying to. And so I knew that it could be a challenge. Uh, and Billy, great guy, by the way, just a wonderful guy. Uh, he had some problems getting the car down the track, and they ended up not qualifying, and Cool was upset about it, and he fired Tidwell, and then Tidwell was married to Linda Vaughn at the time, and she tried to con us into rehiring him, and Cool wouldn't hear of it. And it just turned out to be kind of a mess. But we ended up putting... Rick Ramsey in the car, and Rick had driven the California Charger, which was always a first-rate car mechanically, performance-wise, appearance-wise. I mean, just a flawless operation. And he was a good driver, and, and we knew it. And he was a little guy like me, and he was one of the few guys that would fit into a car that was built for me. One of Tidwell's problems was he's a bigger guy than me, and he was jammed in there and couldn't reach things well. And and so anyway, Ramsey ran really well, and we won some races with Rick at the wheel. Some races at Orange County, we won a race up in Fremont one time and and had a really good time. Rick Ramsey was a fun guy. Gosh. Uh, you know, when the race was over and cool open the beer cooler, you know, <laughs> Ricky the Pointer <laughs> was pretty much usually the first one in for a, for a cold <laughs> brew, and uh, and several more thereafter, and until the party was over, and uh fun guy to go down the road with and i could tell you stories about getting shot at by uh, by drag racers frank bradley one time came over the top of the plywood fence at fremont with a 45 automatic you know oh. emptying rounds out of the clip at us as we were trying to get out of there after cool through an m80 under his car <laughs> i mean and I remember Rick Ramsey begging for his life, begging to God, begging to his mother to spare his life. And, you know, it was those were crazy times. And and Rick fit right into that mold. And, uh, <laughs> and that all went really well for a long time. And then Rick got an uh, offer of a full time ride in something else. By now, Cool was only running the car sparingly. Um, Repainted the car in 1976 as the spirit of 76. That was our bicentennial deal. And it was red, white, blue with stars and stripes, whatever. And Pat Dakin drove the car for a while. And uh, it just, I could see, I could feel it winding down, both for myself and for cool. And uh, at the end of the 76 season, uh, he said, what do you think we ought to do? I mean, we're still... Partners and I, I said, uh, I think we probably ought to look at selling the car since it's at the top of its game right now. It's still competitive. And we had already sold one of our older cars, the 72. What was left of the 72 car got rebuilt by Woody Gilmore, front half and back half. The roll cage was the only thing he could save and finished that car off and sold it to a guy named Clive Skilton from England, who, who was a big runner in England. Uh, and he came over here, bought the car ran it here. I think at the winter nationals. In fact, we had a neat picture of the two cars side by side, whatever the 73 car and the 72 car. He took it back to England. He crashed it. And then rebuilt it. And he sold it to a a woman named Liz Byrne, Mm. who ran it as a top fuel car. And she crashed it bad enough that, that she totaled it. And that, and that was the end of that car forever. It had kind of a, Checkered history. Everybody that ever had it crashed it, you know. Uh, and the last time it crashed, there was nothing left to rebuild, and so that that car could never be restored or anything like that. So, so be it. Uh, anyway, I said, why don't I call Clive Skill? He bought our '72 car, and he might be interested in this car as well because he had sold the car to Liz Byrne, and he doesn't have a new car, and he was looking around to have one built or whatever. He said, that's a good idea. Call him. So I called him and he said, how much do you want for it? Here's what we want. And, and we want the whole package car trailer, spare parts, spare, you know, just the whole operation sign me up. You know, I shot him a price that Mike and I had talked about and he, he never even negotiated. He said, you know, the certified check will be in the mail or the wire transfer, whatever you transferred funds from England to the U S and, Funds got transferred. He came over, picked the car up, had it repainted. Uh, he went to the spring nationals and was runner up to Shirley Muldowney with that car at Columbus. Uh, so it was running really well. And after that race, he took it back to England and he ran it there for the rest of that year, 77. Uh, uh, and then the car kind of disappeared into the haze. And it wasn't until years later when I was affiliated with the FIA, the International Automobile Federation which is an altogether other story about how I became involved with, with that organization in international drag racing. Um, but to si- suffice to say I was at a drag race at Santa Pod raceway in England one time many years ago, and I was walking through the pit area and I, and I saw this car and I looked at it and I, something caught me off guard. And I, this guy saw me looking at walking around it and, he walked over and started standing next to me. And I thought that was kind of weird in itself. <laughs> and so I'm thoroughly confused and trying to figure out where I've seen that car before. And he goes, yeah, it's your car. I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, it's your old top fuel car. They were running it as an alcohol dragster in ProCop over there in England. Had been for many years. And enough of the body panels and paint and everything had been changed that I really had to look at it hard to absolutely ensure that it was the same car and and when i got to really looking at it yeah it was and it still exists over there somewhere wow. so that's that's the uh only one of our rear engine cars that that remains today in some form or another the other ones having gone to the great drag script in the sky um as soon as the um uh, as soon as i was through driving i got a call from lou baney who was the executive director of SEMA at the time. And what a great hire that was for SEMA because, you know, Lou was a car salesman and and he could sell Igloos to Eskimos. (laughs) You can't be a car salesman and not have the gift. If you know what I mean, he had the gift. And uh, the mandate he was given when he was hired by the board of directors of SEMA was we need to get more exposure we need to get more membership. We need to generate more revenue so we can do more things. We need to expand our trade show. And you've got the specs thing that takes time and money and insurance. And so he had been there on the job for quite a few months before he called me. But as soon as he knew that for sure, I was through driving race cars, he called me and he said, I want to offer you a job. Will you come up here and, uh, I'd like to interview you, and if I'm impressed with what you have to say and confident that you're the right fit for this position, you'll still have to be approved by the president and the board of directors, but here's what I can offer you, and pff, it was a nice package of wages and benefits and whatever, and, uh, and in, a, in a situation that I wanted to find myself in, which was primarily motorsport safety, and the high performance industry combined. Those two things always, I wanted to be as involved in those things as I possibly could. So I went home and, and I discussed it with my wife and she said, you know, whatever you whatever you do is fine with me. As long as we can stay here living in our house and whatever, and you're not gonna take a job in Ethiopia or something. You know, I'm good <laughs> with it. You know better than I do what your opportunities are. And so, um I called Lou back and said, yeah. And he sent me then to Edelbrock, uh, Vic Edelbrock Jr. Was the president of SEMA at that time. And so I interviewed with him, which was supposedly going to be followed by a presentation to the board of directors for their ratification. But after my interview with Edelbrock, he said, you got the job. I'm not even going to go to the board with this. They don't like it too bad because this, this is going to happen, you know? So I said, well, when would you like me to report? And he said, uh, how much notice do you have to give Sid Waterman? I said, well, two weeks minimum. He said, well, then show up to the office up up in El Monte in two weeks. And so I informed Sid Waterman. He knew it was coming because we had discussed in general my aspirations over the long term. And he was making some changes in his business. He was going to move his shop from Gardena to Orange County. And it wasn't going to work for me when I, you know, was living up here. And and so it just kind of all worked out perfectly. Uh, he was able to find somebody within the Waterman organization to move into the general manager position and hire some other people uh, when he was expanding down there. I showed up at the SEMA office and went to work with Ludovine uh, with pretty much a blank slate. But eventually my duties and responsibilities involved oversight of the SEMA specs program, which at that time was struggling along with just a handful of products, clutches and flywheels, fire suits, and I don't know much else. Uh, It was pretty minimal because of the liability issues surrounding safety-related equipment and all of that kind of stuff. So Bainey's mandate to me was expand this program into other areas of safety-related equipment. And the other half of your job is being our legislative manager, which means you're going to liaise with local, county, state, and federal government agencies on all of these potential restrictions on the manufacture and sale of aftermarket high-performance products for use on the highway. Federal Environmental Protection Agency, CARB, the California Air Resources Board, I was meeting with those people from the day I reported for work at at SEMA. So the entire staff at that time was Lou Bainey, myself, uh, an administrative assistant named Donna Emery, bright, wonderful, wonderful lady, uh, and a secretary. uh, And that was the entire staff. And we were answering to a 21 member board of directors, which was all (laughs) over the board, all volunteers, And all having their own ideas about what direction SEMA should be going and all of that kind of stuff. And so it was it was where I learned about politics, not national politics, but internal politics and how. And I learned a lot of this from Lou Bainey, how you have to react to certain situations and who you should listen to and what you should ignore and just go on and do your job and what to really be alarmed about what may be happening. Uh, But, you know, I worked there for a couple of years in that position, learned a tremendous amount, uh, was able to get to know and work with, I would say, just about everybody of any real importance in the entire automotive high performance industry at all of its levels. And additionally, working with sanctioning organizations other than drag racing, oval track, uh, land speed racing. Boat racing, uh, you know, all of these organizations are wanting to use the SEMA SPECT program, and, and and we're trying to attract them into those programs to help expand them and what. And so, it was a wonderful job, and I enjoyed every minute of it and all of the challenges, and I learned so much. And boy, learning about national politics and what really makes the wheels of government turn was an eye-opening experience. It was a <laughs> Seeing general counsel, a guy named Dale Hope, who took me under his wing and flew me back to Washington, D.C., to their headquarters office and took me to every automotive related agency, uh, government agency in Washington, D.C., and introduced me to everybody. And then, of course, you learn how it really works. They wow. take them out for cocktails and the best dinner in town. And you've <laughs> somehow come up with a couple of tickets to... Uh, the Washington Redskins football game or, and distasteful. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I remember my mother telling me every lobbyist, every politician is a criminal. They should all be put away and locked up. And it's the reason this country someday is going to go down in flames. You can't, you know, I can hear my mother saying, If you think that you just go out and vote for a candidate, believe what they tell you, and it's all going to happen, you know, you better wake up, son. (laughs) And boy, Dale Hogue woke me up to the realities of how government businesses transacted. And it it put SEMA in a really good position with those agencies to be able to stave off the oncoming uh, restrictions, regulations and things that were threatened the high performance industry tremendously. So, One of the things that I did there is I wrote monthly columns for a variety of motorsports magazines, including Hot Rod, Car Craft, Hot Rod Industry News, Cars Magazine. At first, it was a very easy thing to do. And I think probably any writer will tell you that when you've got all of these ideas and there's things you want to say and you feel like they're important, and you want to get them out to the world. You know, they just flow off your fingertips onto the keyboard of the manual typewriter and and it's easy i mean you know god I, I got this column done already and i haven't even started and you know okay i can get started on the next one well after you've done that for a couple of years and of course no magazine wants you to provide a column that's exactly the same or even similar to something that appears in another magazine you know when i'm writing four or five columns a month it's got to be on four or five different subjects some of them safety, some of them regulatory, some of them legislatively, some of them industry, trade show issues and things like that. And as long as there's new things to talk about, it's easy. It's when there isn't anything new to talk about. You got a deadline coming and you got an editor at a magazine over in Hollywood waiting and you got to type it out and mail it to him because you know, I don't think there were even fax machines, really, much of, <laughs> man, let alone computers. And, uh, and when that clock is ticking, and it's counting down to the deadline, and you still haven't put a sentence on paper, it's tough. And uh, I, I ultimately learned how to do it. And it, it involved a, a lot of self discipline, yeah. and making doing a lot of advanced planning and and things like that. And, and I got them out, but it, it was a burden that was becoming ever more unpleasant for me. And at some point in 1976, uh, I went to work at the SEMA office and Lou Bainey called me in, off, in his office. As soon as I got there, he was already there and he said, come in and sit down. And he said, close the door behind you. And I went, Oh, this, <laughs> this is not going to end well. This this you know, the only time I ever saw Lou Bainey close the door of his office is when he was getting ready to light into somebody. Oh, uh, God, what have I done now? You know? And uh, I closed the door and he said, uh, I got a call from Wally Parks yesterday. I said, Yeah. And he said, uh, He asked me a question. And I said, I'm still confused. What? He said, it. he asked me if I would mind if he offered you a job at the NHRA. You know, well, that perked my ears right up. And naturally, my next question was, well, what did you tell him? And I said, you better hire this kid as fast as you can, because what he does here is wonderful work. And, and there are aspects of it that he embraces tremendously. But the kid's a racer, and his real interest is in you know the, the racing element of the high performance industry and racing in general. And I cannot imagine a better place for this kid to land than at NHRA. So if you want to extend that offer to him, knock yourself out. And later that day, the phone rang in my office, and it was Wally Parks, and he wanted me to come to lunch. And that's what started my quarter century with the National Hot Rod Association. And I could never thank Lou Bainey enough because then he had to go out and find somebody to replace me in fairly short order. And I was up to speed on all this stuff and it was going to create big problems for Lou. But he was the kind of guy that he knew in his heart that if he didn't let me take that job, if he didn't let Wally uh, uh, Parks offer me that job and and didn't let me take it, that he he himself would regret it for the rest of his life. And he told me that. And I you know anybody that ever tried to say a bad word about Lou ban to me got shut down real quick
0: that that's amazing that that actually is an amazing story that i to to give up an employee a good employee willfully like that you just don't hear of something like that
1: no' uh, well, never happened in my life before or since
0: so you leave sema, you're now at the n h r a and and you my understanding of your time at the n h r a is You filled a lot of different roles at your time at the NHRA. (laughs) And I got, I saw the NHRA just recently put up a video of you, even being on camera at one point as a color commentator. I saw you interviewing Kenny Bernstein. I had no idea that you did that until they posted that video. So you were kind of a jack of all trades there or did you, were you more focused?
1: My nickname at NHRA from day one until the last day I was there was Boy Friday. (laughs) <laughs> and the meaning of that term probably falls on deaf ears to a lot of people. But Boy Friday, in my, to my generation, meant somebody who did a little bit of everything. At NHRA, my, I was hired to be industry relations manager, which, was, which entailed overseeing their contingency award sponsorship program, hopefully enlarging it with more manufacturers and better contingency money for the racers and all of that kind of stuff. Also, I was the NHRA liaison to SEMA, of course, because that's where I just came from, (laughs) uh, which was very important to NHRA in those days. It was almost a total partnership between SEMA and NHRA during those years. And uh, I was also supposed to Pretty much just liaise with everybody in the high performance industry that was either an advertiser and national dragster or somehow involved in drag racing that very quickly evolved into the area of safety partially because it was always my number one priority and partially because they were kind of actually looking for somebody to put into that slot other than the people they had in the technical department that you know, wrote the rule book and did the technical inspection at the races, but didn't have the connection with testing laboratories and industry manufacturers and things like that, that that I brought on board just as baggage, if you will. And uh, very shortly thereafter, there was a very major change in NHRA management. And that change was that Wally Garden, I mean, Wally Parks moved up to the position of board of directors, president, president of the board and the president of NHRA became Dallas Gardner. Dallas had come from Ontario Motor Speedway and he had been their financial guy for several years leading up to this change. While he was getting older, he was looking to step back from the front line, if you will, and, and take more of a supporting role. So um, he headed up the, the board meetings and he kind of kept oversight of national dragster because he was always a publisher and editor at the core of his being but day-to-day operations uh, went over to dallas gardner and and the executive uh vice president of nhra when i came aboard was a guy named jack hart who was the the heart and soul of the nhra at that time and became one of my great mentors and was responsible for getting me up to speed at NHRA. He arranged for me to share an office with an office suite with him and share a secretary so that we had constant communication on a day-to-day basis. And he taught me more than I could have ever possibly imagined about drag racing. He had been a drag racer himself. He was grievously injured in a dragster crash at Lions Drag Strip and almost died and had ongoing physical problems for the rest of his life that ultimately, I think, contributed to to his premature death. But he took care of day-to-day business, and he was responsible for everything like insurance and event schedules and purses and, you know, everything but the financial, which was being taken care of by Dallas Gardner. Unfortunately, Jack Hart had passed away. Uh, after undergoing some surgery, died on the table in surgery, and and just a crushing blow to the NHRA in general, and to me in particular. Um, But because of that, the reorganization took place shortly thereafter. Dallas Gardner was elevated to the presidency. Wally moved up to chairman of the board, and then they appointed four vice presidents, who were Bernie Partridge, who was in charge of the field department, Steve Gibbs, who was director of the competition department, Brian Tracy, who was head of the marketing department and myself in charge of being boy Friday. And, uh, and that management group formed what was called the NHRA management council and pretty much oversaw NHR operations from that point on. Um, we held regular council meetings and discussed issues and whatever. And uh, it was a, it was, it really worked well. But what I have to say about how I ended up being Boy Friday is that whenever something would come up that didn't fall neatly into competition field or marketing, it ended up on my desk (laughs) just (laughs) automatically. (laughs) And here was a new challenge that nobody had ever really addressed in the past. And so pick the ball up and run with it. I mean, That's what you do. That's what everybody did back then. The NHRA staff back then was magic, absolute magic. And in spite of all the racers to this day that will tell you NHRA is junk. They're horrible people. They don't know how to run a sport. Let me tell you what. It was a well-oiled machine, and it was staffed by people who were committed to drag racing to the very core of their being. And they worked together marvelously, and we partied together unbelievably. (laughs) I mean, it was it was intense, it was challenging, but it was a hell of a ride, and it was enjoyable in spite of all the trials and tribulations. I and mean, it was a magical time at NHRA and stayed that way for a very long time. And during the course <clears throat> of jumping through all these boy Friday hoops, I undertook responsibility for safety, insurance, legal, um, international relations, um, jeez ah, I don't know uh, SEMA liaison uh, I became elected to the SEMA board of directors for several terms and became an officer in the executive committee keeping that tight relationship between NHRA and SEMA pointed in the right direction um, I kind of oversaw a lot of setting up things like trade shows and displays and uh, I never knew what was coming at me next, and I I loved every minute of it. I loved that challenge, and it always got back to my core motivation, which was safety. And because of that, I ended up for several years uh, being in charge of the technical department and not exactly my favorite assignment ever, even though I have all the respect and admiration in the world for those people. They live in a little bit of a different world than everybody else in the sport, (laughs) some of it by choice and some of it by they're the cops you know yeah you tell your car to the racetrack that guy is going to tell you either to go get in line and race or go home and you know so there's always this kind of wall between the technical people and the racers and kind of everybody else <clears throat> and it wasn't until i ended up being responsible for running the department that i really came to grips with how valuable, how dedicated, and how talented all those people were and how selfless they were in being abused verbally, sometimes physically, uh, you know, never being the good guy, always being the bad guy, you know, always being the enforcers or whatever. But they were very passionate about what they did and uh, and I garnered a tremendous amount of respect for them. I think my, my final assignment uh, was when in 1994, through a series of events that had occurred, starting with some international drag racing festivals in Japan, where Bernie Partridge and I took some cars and teams over to Fuji International Speedway in Japan and and put on these USA Drag Festival exhibitions, kind of generated interest in international drag racing. And Drag racing had been going on in places like Australia, New Zealand, and Western Europe for a very long time, you know, going way back to the 60s when Wally Parks uh, took a, a group of racers over to Santa Pod in England and some other venues in England as well. Didn't turn out well, so that kind of soured Wally on the international thing for quite a while, but there was interest being shown, and uh, there was a group of Scandinavians, <clears throat> uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, that had formed a group called EDRA, European Drag Racers Association, and their objective was to try to create a central set of rules so that a guy with a race car in Sweden that put it on a ferry and sent it to run at Santa Pod in England wasn't faced with a completely different set of rules and regulations and policies and procedures. And what they were looking for is some standardization and and also hopefully upgrading safety overall because it was a little loosey-goosey back then over on that side of the Atlantic. So NHRA started sending me to meetings of the EDRA, and I became very well acquainted with all of them. Their president was a guy named Per Olav Forsberg from Sweden, very dynamic guy, looked a lot like you, by the way, (laughs) and uh, just a really dedicated volunteer kind of guy, uh, and you know, my heritage is Swedish. Both of my grandparents were born and raised in Sweden. And and so I've got that Nordic blood pulsing through my veins. And I think that was a little bit of why I was embraced the way that I was. And uh, as time went on attending those meetings, that group concluded that in order for their objective of standardization to be met, the only way it was ever going to happen was to be embraced by the International Automobile Federation, the FIA, that oversees all of international motorsport. In some cases, totally, they decide absolutely everything. In the United States, it was a little different. We had our own sanctioning bodies with their own rules and regulations. We didn't necessarily follow the FIA anything because they weren't involved in drag racing. They didn't even recognize drag racing. Their president at the time was a Frenchman named Jean-Marie Ballest, who was a, a bit of a madman, to be honest with you. And I mean, he'd show up at the Formula One races with models and hookers. And I mean, I, it's just a weird guy. And uh, it was an unsettling time for the FIA. And, and I knew that there was no in the world we were ever going to approach Jean-Marie Ballest with a proposal that FIA embraced drag race. But uh, in 1994, the FIA held its uh, election for a new president. I guess Ballest uh, was running for re-election, but uh, uh, an Englishman named Max Mosley, Former sports car, formula driver, Formula One car owner, partner in a company called March Engineering that built a lot of Formula One cars and indie cars. Uh, he ran against Balleste and he won. <clears throat> and I went to the next EDRA meeting uh, and said, guys, I think the window of opportunity may have just opened for us here. Uh, because there's a new president at the FIA. Evidently, the U.S. representative to the FIA, a guy named Burdette Martin, out of Chicago, Illinois, has a close working relationship with Max Mosley. And I've spoken uh, to Bertie Martin and suggested that maybe we might think about approaching the FIA about the prospect of them wrapping their arms around drag racing just to the extent of some form of recognition and rules standardization, he thought it was a great idea. He contacted Max Mosley and arranged for Max Mosley to attend the 1994 NHRA US Nationals in Indianapolis, which we thought would be the best opportunity to show him what drag racing was really all about. Much to my surprise, Mosley agreed to do so. Uh, he, he made arrangements to fly over for the Saturday and Sunday of the U S nationals. And of course, eliminations being Monday, he wouldn't be there, but we thought good enough chance, you know? So he flew into Indianapolis, Burnett Martin, picked him up, uh, took him downtown Indianapolis, put him up in a hotel that we were paying for really nice hotel. I might have, um, he brought him out to the racetrack the next day where I met Max Mosley. And then I had arranged for, a multiple person golf cart you know i threw him in the golf cart started driving him around and talking to him about this and that and he's asking questions and i'm answering them and you know there's 800 race cars in this joint things going on all over the place a lot of noise going on he's very focused on everything that i'm saying and i'm timing this tour to end at the timing tower at the starting line Right at the same time that the first round of top fuel qualifying is about to commence. I'm thinking, I'm trying to make an impression on this guy. Buster Couch is the starter. I've already made these arrangements with Buster, who talk about wonderful people, colorful people. Oh, geez. And so anyway, the little golf cart, I've taken them all over both sides of the pit area and down to the end of the track and up in the tower and whatever. And we end up in the golf cart right next to the bleach box and they're pulling the first pair of top fuel cars in line. And I said, would you be interested in, in like, well, these are the top of the line cars that we run in drag racing. You know, they're called top fuel dragsters and supercharged. They run on nitromethane. They're very powerful, and very fast. And if you would be interested, I'd be happy to walk you over here by the starting line, which is a really good place to watch. And he goes, Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, sign me up for that. So I take him up, I introduce him to Buster, I give him the earplugs, I give him a red rag, or Buster, I think, gave him a red rag, you're probably going to want this, you know, he's looking at it funny, it's kind of, probably kind of greasy anyway, They've wiped up the track with him. He's looking around like, where the hell am I, you know, and the next thing you know, they fire up the first pair, they roll through the bleach box, and they burn out past us. Max Mosley's eyes are that big and even though he's got the rag over his mouth i can see his chin hanging down to his chest and he's like and of course this is before reversers so the guys run out and they're pushing the cars back and by now the nitro fumes are getting and we got rubber speckles dry you know falling out of the smoke and landing on everything and he he, he looks very disoriented to me and they go up and they pre-stage And I kind of make the motion, even with the earplugs, hold his hand over his ears, and his red rack drops at the car's launch. And fortunately, they both made a full, complete, competitive 1,320-foot run. Shut off, the parachutes come out. And I look at Max Mosley, and he's going, what in God's name just happened here? (laughs) You know, I said, you want to stay up here for a few more? He goes, you couldn't pry me off of this position with a crowbar. And so he watched a few more And he finally went, okay, I'm good. And I took him back into the tower suites and we spent the rest of the day there. And then we took him to dinner that night at the best restaurant in downtown Indianapolis and Wally Parks, Dallas Gardner, myself and Burdette Martin, and just had a wonderful dinner where he picked my brain clean about drag racing. And he said, I gotta leave tomorrow. I'm sorry I do. If I had known what was going on here, I would never have arranged to fly out uh, before the, the final eliminations. But, uh, but I gotta go. I have a commitment. But, I, I, but you will be hearing from me. And uh, a couple of days later, um, I got a call from the Secretary General of the FIA, uh, who said, Max Mosley has returned from the United States with this wild proposal and suggested that I contact you because his intention at the very next meeting of the FIA World Motorsport Council is to propose establishing an arm of the FIA for drag racing. And to make it part of the FIA world, which is Formula One World Rally Sport, you know, all of the very top level worldwide motorsport. I'm going, this, I, I, this seems like it's working out pretty well, you know. Um, and he, uh, the Secretary General said, Max will be in touch with you after the board meeting. And The board meeting wasn't for a couple more weeks. Sure enough, uh, phone rang at the NHRA, and it was Max Mosley. And he said, not only have I convinced the World Motorsport Council to embrace drag racing, but I have nominated you as the first president of the FIA Drag Racing Commission. And I hope that you will accept the nomination. I said, "Whoa! what does that, you know, what does that involve? And he said, you, you will be the the drag racing representative to the World Motorsport Council. Oh boy. <laughs> Holy I'd be sitting, you mean I'm going to be sitting in a meeting room with Bernie Eccleston and Max Mo? He said, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. He said, I've looked very carefully at everything you do, you, meaning NHRA, do in this sport. And you are the absolute model for every motorsport discipline that I know of. And he said, What I would suggest is that since the FIA has neither the resources nor the experience or knowledge to write drag racing rules and policies and procedures, with the NHRA's permission, we would like to adopt the NHRA rulebook verbatim, albeit a year later so you're 94 rule book would become the 95 FIA drag racing rule book, which gives everybody time to get up to speed on things and and whatever. And he said, there are certain FIA policies and procedures that will have to resort to the FIA regulations. But as far as technical rules and things like that, with your permission, we would just like to adopt the NHRA rules. Well, I went to our management council and they went absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that works to everybody's benefit. That way, if a, a vehicle from Australia or New Zealand or Europe wants to come run an NHRA national event, they're they're already legal, you know, and it's obviously gonna raise the level of safety tremendously. And it's gonna organize everything so everybody's running all over the world on the same rules, and there are rules. What could we object to? So I got back to Mosley and said, yeah. I'll put it in writing and we'll make it all official. And so the at the very next meeting of the World Motorsport Council, the FIA Drag Racing Commission was formed. I was ratified as president. Um, we submitted the NHRA rule book. They wrote it into the 94 rules um, and uh, it took off from there. The next thing that Max Mosley proposed to me was we need to create an FIA a European drag racing championship because right now there is no particular series. There are one-off events, you know, there are tracks in Sweden Norway, Finland, uh, Germany, France, England, but they're all off in their own world. And there's, there's no point system. There's no champion ever developed. So do what you can, if you will, to organize an FIA European championship. And now that we have everybody going to be running under the same rules it was pretty easy to get started and cross the t's and dot the i's and in 1996 uh, the fia european drag racing championship was inaugurated ran in four different countries i think five or six different events and and continues to exist and prosper to this day
0: did you did were you involved with uh Stuart bradbury uh, at all, when uh, I believe he was trying to champion having an NHRA sanctioned track someplace over in England at
1: one point, wasn't he? I worked very, very closely with him. Stu was known in European drag racing as the European buster couch. Yeah. He ran the starting line at all the big events, all the events at Sandapod, and then big events at, at, at other tracks around Europe. And he was pretty much recognized and appreciated as the authority for drag racing in that part of the world and he told me very and i met him instantaneously the first time i ever went to Pod, Uh, and there were other tracks in england as well and i met Stuart right off the bat he's a wonderful wonderful guy and he made no mistake about telling me first thing right out of the box that uh, he envisioned the nhra having a physical presence in England, in particular, and in Europe in general. And I said, well, our involvement in the FIA partially meets that objective. But he said, no, you, you really need, NHRA needs to be here physically on the ground. And there's a track uh, in Stratford-upon-Avon, England. Uh, called Avon Park Raceway. It's on an abandoned World War II airfield, much like Santa Pod and the other tracks in England at that time. Uh, And he said their ownership is not real dialed into drag racing. They're just property owners. They're basically farmers. I I hear through the grapevine, they're thinking about maybe selling that property that the track is on and, and kind of not being burdened by all the trials and tribulations that drag racing brings with it, and uh, <clears throat> he said, "I think I have some investors that would be interested in possibly financially supporting that if the NHRA was inclined to do that." So I brought that proposal back to the NHRA management council. They said, "Full speed ahead, damn important torpedo." So I engaged, along with Stuart Bradbury, in extensive negotiations to. Acquire Avon Park Raceway, at least as a leasehold, and develop a program there that would kind of be the foundation or the centerpiece of European drag racing. The more that we got into it from the legal and business side, it became very unwieldy very quickly. There had even been talk about moving me to England to run the track and to oversee our involvement in European drag racing. And I wasn't totally opposed to that, but I hadn't really stopped and given it serious consideration because we got to do a deal first before yeah. we worry about that. And it turned out there was no deal to be done. The track was not operating with what we over here call a, a conditional use permit. Over there, they call it planning permission. Uh, they were trying to stay under the radar of the Stratford-Avon Council, and it was causing traffic problems and noise issues and biker issues and uh so we were not about to enter into an agreement in, in which we didn't have the legal authority to to run the track and so i tried dealing with the stratford upon avon council members and they basically said you don't want to go down this road you just don't so it never happened And and stuart bradbury god bless him was gutted by yeah the inability to do that. Um, So we carried on. uh, In fact, all of that happened before the FIA championship had been created. So once the FIA championship was created and NHRA was there to kind of oversee it, thanks to my position on the the World Motorsport Council, getting NHRA physically in Europe was no longer a priority for me or for him to any great degree and everything just pretty well fell into place from that point on. But the friendship that we developed through that process and through the ensuing years that I, you know, traveled to Europe many times every year uh, for all of the big events at Santa Pod and and events in other places there as well, where he was the official starter or official, whatever, we'd always have a, a dinner together one night or We'd end up in the beer tent after, the, after qualifying and, and have a couple of toddies. And it's just an absolutely wonderful guy who I ultimately had a lot more to do with when he pretty much was the founding father of the British Drag Racing Hall of Fame. Um, he was a real forward thinker in a lot of things. He was always looking toward the future of drag racing in in Great Britain and Europe. Uh, And he thought having a Hall of Fame would be a good idea, primarily to recognize the people who for decades had built the sport in England. And um, uh, I was very proud to learn uh, in, I think it was 2012 or somewhere around there, that Every year they would have four inductees in the British drag racing hall of fame. Three of them had to be from great Britain. One could be from a foreign country, most often one of the Scandinavian countries or Germany. Uh, But that particular year they decided to, uh, to induct me into the British drag racing hall of fame. And and it, it, it dumbstruck me uh, like very few things in my life have. Uh, And the all the people involved with the hall of fame were careful to point out to me we're we're not inducting you because you drove top fuel dragsters and won some races we're inducting you because of what you brought drag racing here on our continent and uh we appreciate it and and we think you've earned this spot and i was pretty overwhelmed but in a quick aside uh, they make the uh, induction to the banquet much as the international drag racing hall of fame does here and uh I had a lot of commitments on the weekend when that was going to happen. So I ended up getting on an airplane in Los Angeles, flying to Heathrow in London, renting a car, driving up to a little town about 100 miles north of London, finally finding the hotel in a snowstorm, having just enough time to get to my room, unpack, take a quick shower, put my suit on, go down to the cocktail reception and the banquet, be inducted into the Hall of Fame have a couple of cocktails with the boys go to get bed get about 2 hours sleep get up and get in my rental car and drive back to Heathrow and fly home
0: oh jeez uh, well i I was pretty much out of gas by the time
1: i got back home but only it, it was pretty imagine. interesting couple of days you
0: know well and i'm i'm glad to hear uh that uh, i did a i did a feature article on Stuart bradbury because i i was glad to hear that Stu is going to be inducted into the uh, international drag racing hall of fame here uh, this year. And I'm actually going to be at that event. I'm really looking forward to that. So I'm, I'm glad to know that he's, and it's well-deserved what Stuart Bradbury did for drag racing in Europe. And particularly in England, uh, he was a selfless guy. He served the industry and everybody in it selflessly for his entire life.
1: You know, for many years, the International Drag Racing Hall of Fame had only one international member. Uh, Sidney Allard, who was a pioneer drag racer in Great Britain and in Europe, was the only inductee. Everybody else was an American. And at some point, due to my role in international relations and all of the international traveling that I was doing and all the people I was meeting and all the history Of international drag racing that I was absorbing. Uh, I knew all of the members of the selection committee uh, at the International Hall of Fame, and I started lobbying them to induct some of these people whose careers in drag racing, in some cases, in my opinion, exceeded those of some of the inductees already. All of them deserving, but these people were uber deserving. I mean, they'd been there at the beginning and they. Carried the torch and they, you know, they did all this stuff and uh, not just Europe and England. I mean, all over the world. Uh, I think the uh, the first one that I convinced the uh, the electors to consider was a, a guy named Reed from Australia and uh he had won everything there was to win in australia for years there were years he won the top fuel and the funny car australian championship wow i mean how much better can you do than that you know (laughs) and he was just pretty much ignored and uh once I was able to gather up all the information about his career and all the races he'd won and the records that he'd set and all the sponsorship deals that he'd put together and, and he was instrumental in the development and creation of Sydney International Raceway, um, you know, a, a dedicated drag strip right in the in the heart of the biggest city in the country of New Zealand. I mean, he was all over drag racing and it's all that's all he ever thought about or did. And he's just a fabulous guy. And once the, I think once the electors got a good look at his qualifications, it was a no brainer. And I think he became the second one. And then there have been a few since uh, and I proudly claim to have been involved, I think, in at least influencing, you know, quite a few of those. Um, In fact, probably most of them, Stuart Bradbury, not being an exception because, uh, He's as deserving. And my only sadness is that Stuart never lived long enough to enjoy that honor that rightfully probably should have been bestowed upon him earlier than it was.